Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint with me, Gabby Logan. My guest today is singer-songwriter Sophie Ellis-Bexter. She's best known for her music, but in her mid-40s, she's also become a radio DJ and podcaster with her hit Radio 2 show Kitchen Disco now touring the country as a live show. Sophie has released seven albums in the last two decades alongside being a mother to five boys. So from the outside, Sophie seems to be a master of spinning plates. She even has a podcast by the same name. But as we know, perception and reality can be two different things. So Sophie and her guests chat about the reality of trying to balance everything. We're also going to be joined by zoologist and documentary maker Lucy Cook, who's written Bitch, a bestseller which is changing perceptions about the female of the species in the animal kingdom. It's a fascinating read, not least because she talks about menopausal orcas. More on that later, but first, here's Sophie. Sophie Ellis-Bexter, it is great to have you on The Midpoint. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, very well. When we first saw you appear on the screen there, you were sat next to your husband, Richard, and for a moment I thought we were getting a bonus couple episode. <laughs> uh, but you said that thing that a lot of people say, like, there's always somebody in the house that's in charge of technology. Yeah. Um, some, you know, we've all got our little jobs, haven't we, and our little roles. And that panic, that blind panic that you get, which I find is like no other with Zooms and kind of meetings I online. I don't know why we get so stressed about it when it doesn't work straight away. I don't know. And I think I hate being late. So um, for me, when, you know, Zooms are such an exact time. So when I can see the minutes ticking by, I just get more and more anxious. Uh, it's a special kind of anxiety I've saved specifically for logging into things. I think. Yeah, because we didn't yes. even know that these existed about no. four years ago, did we? And, <laughs> no. uh, and then suddenly they create, as you say, I don't think driving around London looking for car park spaces and being 10 minutes late for a meeting, which I also find stressful. Yes. At least I can, people understand that. You can text them and go, oh, I'm just going to be a bit late. I had to, you know, but there's something about the technology, you're right, that gives an extra heightened level of anxiety. Um, but Listen, lockdown gave us all something else. It gave us kitchen discos. Do you see the segue? <laughs> you see the segue there? Nice. <laughs> and the technology to be able to put that out as you did on your platform and give people so much joy. It was such a, a brilliant thing to do for everybody else. But it seemed to me, and I think part of the reason it was, was so successful, it seemed to be a brilliant thing for you to do. You were having a great time. It was definitely born out of a selfish need, definitely. I missed everybody and everything and like lots of people felt very discombobulated by what was going on in the world and obviously the news was very heavy and I was watching my Instagram and my feed and every time anyone was doing anything live I felt such a comfort from seeing people in real time doing something even if it was you know sometimes it was like you'd go on a live and it'd be someone I don't know making biscuits or something and I'd be like me and six other people watching and I was like oh this is funny we're all in this tiny room watching someone make biscuits but um I found the connection soothing so when Richard suggested oh should we do a live stream gig you can sing your songs 
I did think it was, well, I thought it was partly lunacy because the kids were everywhere and it seemed quite risky, but also a kind yeah, but of, you didn't well, even try to kind of seal the kids <clears throat> away somewhere. I, you know, it was nah, totally like, that was part option. of the appeal. <laughs> also, what would I do with them? Um, no, I mean, I would always say to them, you don't have to come. Your dad and I are going to do another disco this week if you fancy it. And sometimes they'd say, nah, and then right like five minutes before we're going to do a live, they just appear in some crazy outfit. But I think they grew to like, not maybe my music, <laughs> but um, the the freedom of the fact that we were kind of, we'd have this half hour of just their dad and I being quite preoccupied, but having a bit of fun. And then they could also have a, let go of some of the tension as well. It was nice. So- the Kitchen Disco kind of gave us a little insight into your world. You know, if people, if you ask people about Sophie Ellis Baxter, they'll say, oh, yeah, she's gorgeous. She's amazing. I love Kitchen Disco. She's so positive. Along the way, though, they will say she's got five children. You know, that kind of it's almost like it's yeah. one of your, you know, defining qualities that you've managed to do all <laughs> that with five children. And the Kitchen Disco showed us kind of how that dynamic might work in your house. How reflective do you think that was of what goes on on a daily basis in the uh, Ellis Baxter um, house? Well, look, it definitely summed up that kind of big family energy because I think if you have a big family, if you're from a big family, there's quite a specific energy that goes with that kind of chaos. But hopefully I'm not usually ignoring my kids as much (laughs) as I did in that. Not quite as self-centered, I like to think. I don't really know how much it reflected the dynamic. What I liked, somebody once asked me, oh, did you rehearse with the kids? I'm like, did you actually watch what they were doing? I would just like the fact that they would literally be climbing a wall behind me or having a little fight or a little dance off. I just found it really funny what they were doing to sort of get the tension out. And um, it was nice to have fun. You know what's weird that we don't really talk about it now. I don't know what their memories are of that time, really. My youngest is probably the most... I think it's in his DNA a little bit. He was only one when we started. And I think he's got that kind of party vibe. And I'm sure that was a big influence. Is he the performer? Well, he definitely is the one. He know, I, he'll always be like, I'm going to do a show. Everybody has to watch my show. Let's get seats together. You'll have to watch my show. But I think he's very uh, bossy about it. He's quite grumpy if we lose interest. I don't know if he'll end up doing it for a living because I think he's going to find people too much. He can't control the audience all the time. You know, it's not going to sustain. Having uh, five children uh, is is tiring, I think, for for anybody. Combining that with the kind of career you've had and the energy you put into that as well takes a special kind of magic. And, and, you know, on the midpoint, you know, people are, some people are releasing children into the world and the empty nest is going on. Other people have started their families later. You've got all spectrums covered, Sophie Ellis-Baxter. One of your children, he's just started school, the youngest. Is that right? Look, you're right. It's, it's a lot going on all the time. And so this month, yeah, my eldest has moved out the same time as my youngest has started reception. Um, a few years back, my youngest started nursery the same time my eldest had first driving lesson. We have these crazy juxtapositions in our house. I just hope that I'm taking enough of it in. I think sometimes when your kids are all in a whirl around you, you get that feeling, don't you? You're under so much pressure to sort of be so present in every moment. But sometimes you are just getting by and hoping everyone's fundamentally all right. But um, it's definitely not a dull life and it's sometimes absolutely knackering. And I do think I'm owed quite a lot of sleep, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You're looking great on no sleep and your energy levels are clearly doing very well to cope with all the different things that you do. Um, Just on that, that kind of juxtaposition and you've 
released one child. He's left home, right? This is a really, as you say, this can be a really emotional moment for for a parent, especially if they've got one or two children, you know, or uh, maybe there's, you know, kind of maybe they're all like 19, 18, 17. With so much going on with the younger ones, though, did you have a moment when he left and feel Mm. a little bit bereft? Or did you feel like, oh, my nest is still so full. I haven't got time to mourn that yet. I suppose I feel I probably... I don't know if I've really indulged too much of the sadness because I feel like that's... I'm more overwhelmed by trying to think about how he's feeling about it all and I think it's the right thing for him. So I feel like me being a little bit mm, is not really what I need to focus on right now. So his room, he's still left a lot of stuff. He's moved out in a very gentle way. He's moved 10 minutes down the road. He lives with my mum now. So it's really lovely and that's a really positive thing and something that... I think it's exactly right for both of them. I'm really happy about it. Um, I've only had the odd flash of it, really. I mean, I've gone in his room and I've been helping him pack up and you find these little bits and bobs. And I mean, I was joking to him. I almost felt like when he moved out, I should give him a survey to fill in about how he rated his childhood (laughs) and like circles he could, you know, how do you rate, you know, your level of care? How well will you listen to your childhood? Uh, That's what would you say? That's a good idea. <laughs> because, because you can actually use that information. I, I would just be really yeah. sad if, the, if it didn't go very well, the survey, because I haven't got much opportunity to make amends. But you, got, you can actually go back and go, right, okay, you four, I've got yeah. the survey, it's yeah. in, things are going to change around here. <laughs> Definitely. And look, I think there would be some uncomfortable things because everybody's got a different emotion about it. And, you know especially right now, he's not going to have that like, oh, it was actually all really rosy. He's going to be like, oh, sometimes, you know, you woke me up when I didn't want, or my, you know, when I wasn't going into school or uh, you told me I just needed to go out and do something too many times or whatever. But um, hopefully overall he feels positive. The nice thing is he's been back loads, of course. I've seen him probably more since he left than I did when he was just up in his room with the door shut all the time. So, so far, so good. And yeah. he, he must have a great relationship with your mum as well to want to move in with her. They've always really got on. They're really close. And I love that. I think I, one of the things that really surprised me about parenthood is watching your child develop a relationship with someone else you love that's got nothing to do with you. I've always really liked that. And I think it's great to see that he's very happy to talk to her about everything and anything and she with him and they've always had days out together they've always done they'll go to a gallery they'll go to a shop they'll have a wander around London they'll do something together go to cinema they've always done that so I actually think they're going to be I mean look it's early days I think they're going to be fairly harmonious plus this sounds terrible and no disrespect to Sonny because obviously he's capable of doing lots of things I feel like it's a bit of finishing school because in a household where the youngest member is four the tone of our house is set by the four-year-old. Supper's on the table at half five. The laundry's all done for them. There's lots of things that I take care of that other people take care of. Mm. But they don't, you know, just for speed and just for efficient, like how the mm. house runs. So he needs to be somewhere now where no one's picking up his dirty clothes from the bedroom floor. No one's preparing him his food on time. Well, my p- mum's probably doing both those things. What am I talking about? <laughs> my mom, She's my his grandma. Of course she is. Of course she is. <laughs> you'll have to live there forever <laughs> and so, so what's the age difference for him and the next one down actually nearly five years right yes yeah, so a kid's 14 
And then I've got an 11-year-old, a newly 8-year-old who's out over the weekend, and um, and then a 4-year-old, yeah. So they're quite evenly paced, aren't they, the next four-ish? Ish. Yeah. yeah, I got into a rhythm sort of every three years, another Jones boy. <laughs> Would there be an album, a tour, a child? Did it kind of go yeah. like that? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, actually. I joked about it after my... After having my first, I said, I'm just going to alternate albums and babies for a while. And then I actually did. (laughs) (laughs) But that means you've never stopped. You know, you can kind of look at some people's musical careers and when they get to your kind of age and you think, oh, there's about a 10 year period here where they they didn't make much music or and they crammed it all into here and here. But you've you've just had this continuum and you've been with us. uh, You know, I feel like you've never gone away, really. Well, firstly, sorry about that, but also... No, it's, I, I it's a good it's not, thing. <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily the case, really, especially after I had Sunny, actually. I felt like I took quite a while to make my third album and I didn't really know exactly what kind of... what it was going to look like for me to be a pop star who also happened to be a mother because this is 20 years ago now and I don't think we had quite such a positive association with new mothers being able mm. to still do bits and bobs if they wanted to. And wear the kind of things you wanted to wear. Exactly. The image Mm. was not great. And I felt like I didn't quite know how to wear both those sides of myself at the time. And I think that's probably why I started my podcast, which is a conversation about motherhood and its influence on work, because I think it did take me quite a long time to come back to myself in a way. I was always happy to be a mum, but I, I didn't really know how to do the two things and feel good about it for a little minute. That's interesting because then you must have some at some point, whether it's subconscious or consciously thought, well, I've now got this because I'm going to keep going and having loads of kids. Because, it, you know, if you hadn't kind of got to a place that you're comfortable with, one of them was probably going to stop. I mean, with motherhood, I think I think I just let my instinct guide me, actually. And I think I just when I first had Sunny, I didn't have any girlfriends with babies and I found aspects of it isolating. However, at the heart of it all. I always loved being Sonny's mum very, very much. And people make a lot of, you know, your children's personalities coming out as they get older. But I think the same thing happened to me as a mum. I think I found, oh, it's okay. I can be this kind of mum. I took lots of advice as I do at every point in my life. I'm loving taking counsel from my girlfriends, from people who are older and wiser. I'm always into that. So that helped me in the early days. And then I think I just let it kind of, unfold a bit really I mean that's the amazing thing isn't it about if you do happen to be responsible for a small person that whilst there's lots of advice out there that's generalized ultimately there's only one you and only one them so you can find your way to that relationship that works for you so I think that helped and then with music I think again I just sort of I took my time my third album I took ages to to write I really cared about it a lot I wanted it to be something I could be proud of. And I think I kind of remembered how to have a lot of fun with it, really. I mean, ultimately, it is so much fun doing what I do. And I think that kind of grew and that trajectory. My 30s, I absolutely loved. I just found it so much more empowering. I felt at a stage where I had enough experience to be able to take risks. And that is something that's actually a bit of a privilege, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, everything was coming in and you couldn't you couldn't screw up any opportunities. You had to say yes to the majority of things. But when I got to my 30s, it was a case of, you know what, I feel like I'm too young to be stuck in a, a rut or to get too comfortable. 
So let's pull the rug out and see what happens. And you've got enough experience to feel like, you know, it's not too crazy a risk, but at the same time, you're young enough that if it all goes a bit pear-shaped, you can kind of pick up and start again a bit more. So I made a folk album and I just, yeah, just did some stuff that I wouldn't have done before probably. Confidence, just feeling more assured, being, you know, kind of who you felt more comfortable with maybe. All those things kind of yes, feed into that, don't they? That's a big part of it. Yeah, the people around me, for sure. And then one of the things you said, I read you said anyway, about turning 40, 40, 40, Mm, um, (laughs) being 40, (laughs) was that you said this is the decade that's going to be about me and I'm going to stop being such a people pleaser. Yes. I mean, I think it's still a little bit of a work in progress. I think if you're someone that's like that, it's quite a hard thing Mm. to completely shrug. However, I can feel it coming and... I think, much to my children's horror, a lot of my inhibitions have gone. (laughs) um, I really do love my job so much. And is this this a little bit of what a lot of women describe, a lot of people actually in this period of life describe as just not giving a shit anymore? (laughs) I'd Um, I'd like to give it a more technical name, but but people kind of go, well, do you know what? I don't care what people think anymore um, and that doesn't mean they're being rude or being obnoxious or they're just not that bothered about having to kind of please I guess I don't think it is quite that for me I think it's a bit more to do with I think the, the inner critic has got I, I don't really hear that so much anymore I don't mean I think I'm fabulous <laughs> I just mean I think I used to do shows and in my head throughout the whole gig I would be pulling it apart I'm sure that's a very normal thing for performers but I just don't really have that anymore. I'm a lot more comfortable with myself. I love being with the people I'm with on stage. I love my interaction with the crowd feels very special. I suppose part of that was probably the time we were talking about before the the lockdown and then being back out again and just really being happy to have the the possibility of performing in front of people. Mm. But also I'm having a really nice time and I've had some incredible adventures. Even this year I've done things... I never thought I'd be able to do like playing Glastonbury Pyramid and things like that. And I just think all of it would be wasted on me if I'm not thinking, firstly, this is amazing, but also if I'm wasting it by being worried about it or hung up. Mm. I just don't waste any of it by worrying about any of it anymore. Like just seize it, really. That's the the, the kind of perfect confluence, isn't it? Of being confident enough to know what you're doing is great without second-guessing yourself and enjoying it. You know, you often hear athletes and sports people talk about them, their careers and how they don't, they never, ever enjoyed it along the way because they were always yeah. so focused and and they have to retire quite young. And the beauty, I yeah. guess, of being a pop star is that you can get to a place where you can enjoy it as well as being brilliant, you know, because you have to put your hours and hours in to get to the point where you're great. You but now you can actually keep keep enjoying what you do because you know you're accomplished. Well, I think as well it evolves. I mean... I'm quite fascinated by the the sports person athlete idea that you work all that time, but then there's got to be a point where you have to be the other side of that hill and then you've got to deal with that next chapter. And actually, as as far as I understand it, a lot of people in the run-up to all that, excuse the pun, are not having that conversation about the life after. Mm. It's That's almost seen as something that's not helpful for their mindset to get them focused for what they're doing, the task at hand. Whereas for me... In music, I've always been looking ahead of like, oh, what happened to that band, that singer? What are they up to now? And aspects of what I do now, I probably would have thought, oh, I don't, that doesn't look like very much fun. You know, if you're not 
on, I don't know, on the playlist at Radio 1 and you're not doing the big events. And then you get to this point and you think, oh, actually, no, this is really cool. I shouldn't have felt sorry for artists like me when I was younger because actually now I'm having a really nice time and there's so much less pressure because you're not, you're so encouraged to be competitive when you start out. Now that's all faded away. You realize you can just exist in your own little world. And if it's working for you, then that's all that matters. Do you think that's partly the kind of perception of relevance? The younger you was thinking that to be relevant, you had to be in the zeitgeist that you were in. You know, you were in that kind of like, um, as you described it, top of the pops. Well, maybe it wasn't top of the pops then. Maybe it was um, Radio One, you know, those all that kind of stuff. Radio One's Big Weekend, you know, all the, the, you know, the the certain festivals that you had to be in. Whereas now you realise there's there's more to it. There's more to it than that. And you're relevant to the audience that you want to be relevant to. I think as well that that is the conversation because that's what that's what's happening all around you and it's not it's you know when you're with the record company when you're with your manager everybody's talking about these things and what opportunities there might be and oh you're in you're down to the last three for this slot or whatever it might be and I think it's just constantly in your peripheral vision all the time you know it's Jacob's ladder there's always higher rungs so you get somewhere and they go oh great now that you've done that you might do this oh you missed out on that but maybe you could do that it's just a constant thing of like striving for the next bit mm. and I think in in some aspects it's kind of true because if it does all stop then obviously there's no career to be building on so you do need you do need certain things to happen to be able to to change gear as time goes on but it's just it's just really nice and it sort of cre- it crept up on me a little bit, I guess. I felt like I was just pootling along for ages and then suddenly it's like, oh, I've actually been doing this for like 15 years, 20 years. Now I think it's like twenty over 25 years since I did my first gig. And that's like, oh, oh, that's quite a nice feeling. And then you might do a new job and where I used to be intimidated and walk into a room and maybe not know people. Now it's like, oh yeah, we've worked together. And oh yes, I've done this. And you know, just the stuff that I suppose experience and you just feel a lot more comfortable because, yeah, you, you're in your own little bubble, I suppose. Is that the right phrase? Yeah, I think so. You're, you're just existing in your own little space and I've got all the people I work with and we're all happy. So that's mm. good. Yeah. Mm. Um, actually, com- speaking of competition, it was your, it was you and Victoria Beckham, wasn't it, vying for for number yeah. one. That was, and that, that was a really kind of insidious kind of head to head thing that the press generated. I felt at the time, I kind of like it, so was just, it was just, it was, it was also ridiculous. You know, it was also um, it was. You, I don't think you get that quite that poisonous kind of aspect to. You know what? Though I don't. Now. Think, well, it didn't feel poisonous actually because some of it was about genre. So. This was at a time when house music was just crossing over to being commercial. So it was really also a conversation because her track was um, a garage track and Groovejet was a house track. So that's like Ibiza, Ayanapa. So there was a slightly sort of genre thing. Some of it was quite playful, I thought. But what I found intimidating is that I'd come off the back of being in a band, an indie band that had been signed to Mercury and then been dropped. So from my point of view, I was about to have the biggest song of my career and I didn't want to feel like like people would feel sorry for me if I hadn't been number one and I just found that really ridiculous like no no like if it's number two even if we're like number 14 it's still better than anything else I've ever done (laughs) so I was just trying to really take in the whole experience and that was the first time I'd ever really listened to much dance music as well so everything was coming in at all 
angles at that time. And yeah, and how ridiculous to be suddenly in the same conversation as a massive you know, a spice star, girl. Like a spice girl, yeah. <laughs> so the whole thing to me was sort of ridiculous. And I don't think there was anything at the root in it that was personal at all. And I can mm. see that it, you know, it made a good story. And I remember meeting Victoria on a Saturday morning TV show around that time and sort of saying, Oh, I just thought I'd say hi, because this is all a bit silly. And she was probably a lot more used to She'd all been around the block on that ever. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she was just like, you know, such, such is life. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, really? Okay. Um Because you've said that because yeah. going into that, your first kind of foray into into the industry and the band that you were with and the the kind of disappointment almost that you had at that point. And and that yeah. has set you up, you felt set you up really well actually for what came next. Yes, definitely. I think I think that failure of my first band was incredibly defining actually. And I think I would not have been the same person if that hadn't happened. I think I'm probably a nicer person because <laughs> it happened. Mm. If everything had just gone one thing, one thing, one thing, success, success, I think I'd be, I think I'd be intolerable. <laughs> <laughs> it gave you a dose of humility. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, you just, you just need to know what it feels like if it all goes away and, um, and you have to start again. And it made me so grateful for all the opportunities. And I think it clarified my work ethic as well, because up till then, you know, I was 19 when we got dropped and it was very easy to blame other factors for the fact that it hadn't worked out. But I thought, you know, you've got to like, you can't have that attitude. Mm. If you're going to do it again, you've got to be at peace with the decisions that get made and be resolved. Who wants to be a bitter old musician? There's too many of them already. You, you've got to, um, you've got to be at peace with how the cards fall. So now, ever since then, every time something hasn't gone the way I've wanted it to, you've got to remember, yeah, but maybe I'm already doing better than I ought to be anyway, you know? Who's entitled to success anyway? Who's entitled to any of it? Just get out there, do the work, stop complaining. You've been booked for something. Great. Focus on that. Give those people a really good show. Make them feel they did the right thing to come and see you. Get on with it. <laughs> well, that's a very sane way of, of, you know, carrying on with your career, isn't it? I think, as you as you say, nothing's ever yeah. as bad as it seems. Nothing's ever as great as it seems, isn't it? It's, it's that kind of measured level headedness, but still enjoying it at the same time. And also something you yeah. can impart to your children about their disappointments in life. Definitely. And, you know, it's hard, isn't it? Because as a mother, you want to swoop in and smooth off all the edges of everything. But I remember, you know, when the kids were younger my older ones were younger, I would always, you know, I'm very good at writing the emails if I feel like something's not happening. But, you know, the, the teachers, not mean emails, but I'll just say, I've noticed this, what can we do to help with that? And then when um, Sonny, you know, got older and he was having, I don't know, if he'd have a, a problem with one of the teachers, I'd say, look, I could swoop in and help you with all of this, but I won't really, you're going to meet that character again and again. They won't have the same name, but that, type of person mm. who makes you feel like that about the project you're working on you might meet that person again so you're I'm actually just going to try and give you some advice on how to deal with that character rather than just problem solve and make it go away each and every time because ultimately I won't be doing you any favor because you'll meet them again they mm. might look totally different but you will meet them again I promise you I still meet those characters in my life I'm sure you do too you just learn how to deal with that
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm going to bring in our expert today, uh, Sophie, who is Lucy Cook, who has written the book Bitch, which um, I've already described in the intro to the podcast, but it is a revolutionary guide to sex evolution and the female animal. Uh, I think that's that's it in a nutshell, Lucy, isn't it? Is that a good pithy description? I think so. I approve, Gabby. I approve. Yes. Good. And <laughs> um, there's much to talk about and to cram into yeah. the time that we have with you. And when I read the book, it won't surprise you to know that the chapter on the orcas and the study on the orcas was one of the things that I just smiled at, which was basically the, the orcas, postmenopausal women, become the leaders, effectively, don't they? And they are not put out to sea. They don't kind of disappear. Uh, nature doesn't get rid of them. They actually become more important postmenopausal. Absolutely. So, you know, the orca society's got it right. They understand the value of, of older women and their value is their wisdom. It's what we've been talking about, right? You're old, when you get older, you become wise, don't you? And you have you have things to share as a wider, older individual that's seen the world and lived through some stuff. And that's the role of the of the of the orca grandmother. You know, she orcas are one of the few species that we know of that that goes through menopause. Incredibly rare in the animal kingdom. Natural selection takes a very dim view of a loss of fertility. Basically, if you stop reproducing, you die. You're worthless. Well, that's um, so kind of what used to happen to us, wasn't it? You know, post, <laughs> we've not lived post 50 for that long in the scheme of things, have we? So so we're kind of, you know, learning to, to how to cope with that. Whereas the animal kingdom, as you say, hasn't got that many examples. It hasn't got that. But, you know, but I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that females have been so massively understudied. So, in fact, only last week there was a paper that was published that said that there's a population of chimpanzees that they've just discovered that the females actually live beyond their reproductive fitness as well. So so I think there are more out there. But for the time being, the only the, the official four that we share this this quirk with are all toothed whales, which seems really weird. There's narwhals, the ones like sea unicorns, um, shortfin pilot whales, orcas and um Beluga whales. And orcas have been the most studied. And there's like sort of particular population off the coast of Washington state that have been studied for over 50 years. And the reason why they go through menopause is because they live in these family pods. And it's so that they don't compete with their daughters, basically, over limited resources, firstly. Um, and so they invest instead in their, their sons and daughters and their offspring, rather than continuing to reproduce and ending up competing with their daughters who are younger and fitter and making healthier eggs, right? So that's number one. But the other reason why is it, it just, it seems that they have selected for longevity. 
because the females in that society, in, in most, in many animal societies, females live longer than males and females become repositories for wisdom. And that wisdom is valued amongst orcas in that it's the postmenopausal grannies who lead their society. So they're out the front when times are hard, they're teaching, they're showing where the fish is or, or teaching, passing down the culture because orcas are incredibly clever and they have this amazing culture. I mean, you've probably seen them on Attenborough shows where they're knocking um, seals off ice floes, which is always a little bit heartbreaking to watch. But you've got to marvel at the feat of coordination of that that act, you know, and that and that that has to be learned. And that's and that's the these old females that are doing that. So yeah, I found it incredibly inspiring because also, I mean, they, the thing about orcas is that they, they they have these incredible huge brains that are a magnet for superlatives, and they have this bit of their brain called the paralimbic lobe that, that only orcas and dolphins have, and where it sits in the brain, it suggests that they process emotions and empathy in a realm that we can't possibly understand, which makes you think about the cohesiveness of their hunting techniques and the cohesiveness of their of their society and i found that really inspiring and and they do also look after members of their society who are disabled which is something that we we haven't seen in in many species again possibly because it hasn't been noticed but there's a population of orcas off the washington coast and one of them has scoliosis and and so it has a bent spine i mean it can't swim as fast but it's protected by that community and you know fish is shared and and it's looked after so mm. i just found the orcas just like be more orca that's what i think you know the females are, <laughs> they, they've got the wise old lady whales are the repositories for ecological wisdom that keeps their society alive and they're incredibly but, inclusive you know so what's not to like it, about that, that? It's incredible. And it's interesting as well, isn't it? As you said, that there aren't enough studies on older female animals anyway. So we may discover more and more as as more female scientists are kind of released into this area, because it's another thing that you talk about as well, that uh, so much of our scientific understanding of the animal kingdom has come from a male perspective. And obviously, you know, that the man himself, Mr. Darwin, who um, his idea was that the female of the species obviously was waiting for the male to come along and, and select them. And, uh, and so so from a sexual kind of relationship point of view, there was this perception that women didn't enjoy, or the animal kingdom, the women weren't actually doing it for enjoyment. And you have examples uh, in the book as well of, of animals that actually have sex because they like it, not just to procreate. Absolutely. I mean, there's all sorts of um, hangovers from the kind of Victorian male perspective of the animal kingdom, which, you know, I mean, I studied evolutionary biology. Charles Darwin was my hero, you know, and I was absolutely shocked to discover how such a meticulous scientist, because he really was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scientist, but he was blindsided by the culture of the time. And, he, and, you know, whether he actually saw females in that way or whether he felt under so much pressure by society to portray them in that way. We'll never know. But um, certainly females in his description were, were passive and males are active. So that's and that fundamental idea is is still very much embedded in 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 modern evolutionary thinking. I mean it's it's shocking. But 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 what I talk about in the book is how it took this sort of amazing group of trailblazing feminist um, biologists, mostly from America, actually, who kick-started the change in the 1980s and then onwards to basically redefine what it means to be female. And of course, one of the big 
double standards is that females are are passive they're coy they're seeking chastity and males are the only ones who are who are promiscuous by nature right and um this is an incredibly sticky myth but it is a, a myth ne- nevertheless you know this this idea that, that that females i mean it always used to make my head hurt at university because i think well if the males are all promiscuous and the females are all seeking chastity then then how does that work out who are all mm. the males where are the numbers coming all from the females? <laughs> exactly the numbers don't stack up you know for a start but uh, yeah it's absolute rubbish and and you know females are just as sexually strategic as males and that strategy often involves mating with multiple males whether it's because you know why put all your eggs in one basket mating with lots of different males you know increases your chance of hitting the genetic jackpot you know and that's the case with songbirds for years it was thought songbirds were 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 monogamous because you see them they build a nest outside your house and they seem to be just replicating your lifestyle you know in birdland you know in this lovely monogamous setup but um when uh, when Patricia Goati, who's this amazing feminist firebrand, she did DNA fingerprinting on a clutch of eggs and found that a clutch of eggs frequently had multiple fathers. And when she presented her data to this big ornithological conference in the 1980s, she was told that the only way that was possible was if the females were raped, because that would be the only way that females would possibly, it wouldn't be through their own sexual agency that they'd be doing that. I mean, it, it's, wow. it's, it's bizarre. I mean, it's just so yeah. nuts how, how much people don't want to believe that females have as much sort of agency and strategy as, as males. It's, it's really mind-blowing. Uh, now, at this point, normally on the midpoint, the expert who comes on would be talking about things like nutrition in midlife or um, or money or, you know, relationships. So our regular listeners might be thinking, well, well hang on a minute, where's the takeaway advice going to come from today? Well, guys, listen, I just thought it was so interesting. And I think one of the things that I think we all need to do in midlife and beyond is to keep challenging our thought processes and challenging the things that we read and see and hear, because I think people can get into little silos, can't they? And their beliefs are their beliefs. And, you know, that's it till the day they die. So, you know, I think your your book obviously is challenging, I think, for a lot of people who might have had those perceptions, but it's also really fascinating. And, you know, if you like anything about the natural world, Sophie, I think, you know, these kinds of um, studies are just brilliant. And they inform as well the kind of way we've, as a society and culturally developed over hundreds of years, don't they? Definitely. I mean, when you said about everything had been through the male scientist gaze, it makes such sense, but it's not something you think about because you just learn that your brain isn't going back outside the textbook to think about how that person was analysing what they saw. That kind of stuff is fascinating. Yeah, and when you think about it in other subjects as well, Lucy, when you kind of look back 50, 60 years and you think about who was writing the textbooks and who was writing the curriculums and um, and actually one of the ways that, that we know this is, affects women today is the fact that still two-thirds of medical schools in the UK don't teach a minute about the menopause. <laughs> you know, again, hangover, isn't it, from those kinds of courses and those kinds of textbooks being written uh, by men. So um, would you say now that your world of zoology and the natural world is more reflective of, of society and and what we, if we looked into it, would we, we feel like it reflects the world we live in? I, I think it does. I think it's incredibly important that we understand animals properly because they get reflected back on us, you know. So it is, it's not just about sort of, 
you know, it, it is really important that we that we understand gender roles and understand how flexible they are in nature, right? And that there is, you know, sex is no crystal ball. It doesn't dictate an animal's behaviour or indeed their brain. You know, I mean, Darwin actually said, you know, that, that males have evolved to be more superior than females. That's, you know, one of this idea that there's pink and blue brains, for example. Well, I've discovered, I mean, I, I believe that. I mean, it's a fantastic piece of branding, you know, but it's just <laughs> not true. It just isn't true. You know, there is no, we mean looking for significant differences in between male and female brains for decades, and we just can't find them. So, you know, these things are really important that we we, we have them right and that we understand, you know, that the inherent plasticity and, and flexibility of, of, of sex and it's how it's manifested. But, uh, you know, there is still a way to go. We are, evolutionary biology is in the throes of a paradigm shift and we're sort of still slightly kind of struggling with, with moving forward. But I think the key to all of this is that um, you have diversity in the voices that are asking questions. So it was females being educated, getting the same education as men that came in and were able to go into the field and ask questions alongside men that were about from a female perspective. But equally, you know, it's it's people who have different sexualities and gender identities being mm. able to ask questions from their perspective. Yeah, because you, also... you have in the, in the book as well, you talk about various um, animals where there are, there's quite a lot of same-sex relationships and uh, also bringing up uh, their, their offspring together. Yeah, absolutely. There's like there's a huge amount of plasticity of sexuality in in the animal kingdom. There's you know you I, I talk about it, that you're referring to the fantastic female albatross that that get together and and raise the chicks and um, some of which have relationships that last decades. You know that are that are just as as sort of romantic as the heterosexual ones, but they just went ignored for a long time because the female couples look identical and nobody realised that they were female couples and not male and female couples. So, you know, and I think that's really empowering for people to understand because the word natural is such a loaded term. You know, mm. if something's natural, then it's it's considered okay. Better. So I think it, it's, yes, it's better somehow. You know, well, you know, it's, it's also natural for, for male chimpanzees to be infanticidal. That's not better. You know, the whole naturalistic fallacy is, 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 is ridiculous, you know, but nevertheless, the word natural is uh, incredibly important. It's important to understand, therefore, that all behaviours are, 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 they're all natural. You know, there's nothing unnatural about same-sex sexual behaviour. There's loads of it in the animal kingdom. So, yeah, I, I, I found that that was really interesting to me, the fact that there's not just sexist bias, but there's this heteronormative bias, which which I myself had, you know, and I and I and, and so it's been it, it, what I found writing the book has been a real awakening to me to check my own biases, you know, and to try and be aware that you, you see the world through the prism of your own existence. And, you know, if, if Darwin can trip up, then so can you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've forgotten the name of the birds who get together. The men all kind of do this, actually a bit like a kitchen disco, I imagine, Sophie. They all kind of dance around and try and attract the chicks, don't they? To the point where they get so tired. And your your descriptions and the way you write is also so funny as well. I was laughing at this kind of, you know, that the, the birds that are left at the end that look exhausted and, and no chicks <laughs> have gone up and, and chosen them. And uh, <laughs> I think living in a house with five boys as well, Sophie, you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you might well, also actually, it, actually when you were talking about the male brain and the female brain that reminded me of something because obviously as a mother of sons I'm always pushing back on the stereotypes that people have about the fact they must all be kind of like the same bloke over and over which I find weird and 
and restrictive for my sons, to be honest, you know. Like just today, someone said to me, oh, five sons, I bet they all don't really like dancing and none of them want to dance with you. And I'm like, definitely not. Some of them love it. Some of them are not so keen, but they're all just individuals. So I think I think a lot of what you're saying, Lucy, about the the way gender and the plasticity is viewed in the, the natural world, we're actually playing a little bit of catch up with some of that, I think. I think a lot of this talk will won't even be a conversation in the same way in the future, you know? I hope so. I really hope so. And that's great to hear you say, because I, I, my new book's about males who suffer to stereotypes ah. in the same way as females. They're just different stereotypes. It's all about being the biggest, the most aggressive, the most competitive. Definitely. It's all about competition. You know, I'm writing about alpha males now. And, and, and as primatologists understand it, it's completely different to the, the, the way that we've created this, this, this cartoon of an alpha male, you know, that, that is really restrictive to young boys as well. You know, so, so yeah, it's really important to get. And so you're writing right. that at the moment, Lucy? Yeah. Have you got a name for it yet? I like a title. So it's going to be called Cock and Bull, The Great Masculinity Myth. <laughs> Uh, Brilliant. Cock and bull. Cock and bull will sit nicely next to bitch on my exactly. bookshelves. Uh, Lucy, thank you oh. so much. Um, and you've given us just a tiny little snapshot of the book there. But I, I you know, would say go and read it because there's so many brilliant studies in there. And as I say, your writing is is not at all kind of scientific and dry. It's, you bring to life brilliantly um, all of those studies. And it's very funny as well. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Lovely to meet you both. Thanks, Lucy. Yeah, you, you make a great point there, Sophie, about I've only had one boy, but girl-boy twins. So for me, it was always the great human experiment because people would be like, well, I mean, do they do this the same? And do they, you know, and you kind of go, no, it's, na-, you know, there is definitely, you know, nature's one thing, but nurture, you know, or the way they wanted to push against the nurturing that you felt you were doing and, and be their own person and have their own ideas about things is definitely uh, there to see. But as five boys, you must see such different facets of the male <laughs> and different ways to be a man. Yeah, well, just, um, I mean, so far, I think of them just as people really I mean it, I, I actually just said it to Richard not long before I started talking to you because my fourth boy turned eight just last week and <laughs> he'd asked for a gold hairbrush and some Muji drawers he like really loves organizing I love Muji I drawers like, I am so with oh, him I've got about yeah, eight he's sets got, um, <laughs> yeah he's absolutely blown away by it and he he keeps begging me to take him back to Ikea because he just loves all the storage but um I just, I was like, God, imagine if we hadn't had him, we would never have met this. I just love the fact that all so different. Like there's, you know, there's lots of quirks in there too. We're quite a quirky family. And um, I just find it endlessly fascinating. And I think honestly, that's, that's why I ended up having quite a few is I got a bit obsessed with that. Like, it's a bit like getting <laughs> those next? little like, yeah, it's like putting a coin in one of those machines and twisting, you get an egg and you open it like, oh, I got this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to see who was out there. So when Mickey yeah. came along, did you decide you, you twisted the, the machine enough at that point? Which sounds mm-hmm. like a terrible euphemism, but had you... It's, sorry, it's, <laughs> I know. What a terrible metaphor I gave us there. Um, <laughs> you know what? I, I'm one of those people who can't say the sentence, but I, I just was like, I think, I think I'm probably done. I, but I couldn't say, yeah, that's definitely it, which is ridiculous because... Firstly, I've quite enjoyed, you know, moving on some bits and bobs, you know, the cots, the buggy, the board books from when they're small, all that stuff. And then um, Richard said a sweet thing to me after we had Mickey. He said, I think it's time to watch them grow up now. 
And I was like, oh. okay, yeah, maybe it's time to watch them grow up. <laughs> that's that's really lovely, actually. That's a really nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice way of talking you out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of another baby. Do you think you yeah. you would be different had girls come into the mix? Do you think it has at all shaped the household in a different way, or or your perception of society, or any is there any is there any part of you that kind of wonders whether or not you'd be a different mother to a girl? I well, I probably wouldn't have felt quite so keen on on allowing them the freedom for individuality as a as a basic because I think when I had my son I had the first thought like probably a lot of women might think oh a boy oh I don't really know boy thing what's that and then I thought hang on a minute no I've just had this little boy Sonny and he happens to be a baby when we meet and he happens to be a boy but really I want to know who he is what's he all about and so for me the expectations that were put on my child purely because people knew he was a boy, maybe even before they met him, made me even more keen to sort of fight for his right to just be whoever he wanted to be. And I don't know if I would have felt so insistent on that if it had been a girl, because obviously those expectations were put on me and then you just learn how to deal with it. So I think in some ways it shaped that. But beyond that, I think I've always said the best thing about having a girl would be people would stop asking me if I was trying to have a girl. I always thought that was sad. I thought that was like a yeah. sad idea. Like the, like these children were spares. That, yeah, imagine yeah. these children were just... <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I'm disappointed of that one, you know, yeah. that just was never the case. But um, yeah, I'm sure things would be different. But then I think your family and your life is so shaped by who you spend it with anyway. So, yeah. you know, whoever whoever came along was always going to make a difference. You're, you're such, uh, you know, your outfits on stage and what you wear and anyway in real life, you know, you've got such a distinctive style and, um, you know, and you wear it so well. You have such a, a, you know, kind of a look. How much of that is curated? How much is totally and utterly natural? Like when you wake up in the morning, if you fancy putting on a kind of marabou skirt, um, <laughs> is Sophie going to just rock rock up to school in that? Is that kind of, or do you have, clo- um, do you have, and when you talked before, I just, uh, this is a really long question now, but when you talked before about the kids being uh, kind of, you know, slightly embarrassed by you losing your inhibitions. Does that mean that that's mm. been reflected in how you would kind of dress um, in everyday oh. life? Or? Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, that was a few things in one, I feel. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Wardrobe. I just really enjoy it. I mean, as I speak to you, this way is like the rest of my clothing. So there's just... You're just looking... Oh my gosh, look at that behind you. everywhere. What's that? And I really love it. And I think... Uh, my eldest is quite into his fashion. He says, your style is so all over the place, mommy, because I really like, I'm like a magpie. I do like sparkly things. I like collecting stuff. I like vintage. So I feel like I've got dresses and outfits for probably a person that I'm maybe never going to be. I just quite like the way that outfits can change how you feel. But in terms of wearing stuff and you know what they think, I think it's more when I was doing the lockdown discos, actually, is was probably the final hurdle in terms of me feeling like hey I could just wear this because all these things I'd been buying for years leotards and dressing up clothes and I suddenly just found myself putting it all on and now I wear a lot of it on stage and one of someone once said oh I bet your eldest finds it really embarrassing and I was like no no he's really supportive and then I said that to him and he was like actually sometimes I do think you've taken it a bit far but I was like well you know what darling sorry but sometimes things have got to be mine I've got to I have love, things that are just for me I love that um, behind you now we can see some sequins and I feel I'm yeah. even more in Sophie Ellis Bexterland now that I can see that and yeah, uh, yeah. surrounded if, if then you could see full 360 you'd be laughing 
room. And it's also where my youngest sleeps. Oh, right. So, surrounded by sequins all the time. I don't know what he's going to think about life. He must have some great dreams. Yeah. You're um, 44 right now mm. when we speak. And so you you might be feeling any some kind of perimenopausal symptoms. You might have no idea, you know, about that at all. Has it come across your path? Have you had any kind of conversations with your mum about how she dealt with menopause? Yes, my mum, I've spoken to quite a lot about it. And also I've got lots of girlfriends who are a little bit older than me and we've had lots of chats about it. They've been super helpful. I'm not really quite sure yet. I don't think anything specific where I'm like, that's definitely that. Mm. Uh, So as far as I know, it could be lots of stuff. But as I understand it, there's like absolutely loads of symptoms and I might have a few and not have really joined the dots. I don't know. I'm, I'm so happy all the conversations around menopause have, have been happening because I felt, I remember saying to someone when I was in my late 30s, I don't really feel like I know what happens in the menopause and why does nobody talk about it? And now I feel like there's loads of talk about mm. it. And it's been really helpful because it's totally taken the abstract, you know, myth or the... It just demystifies it, doesn't it? it? Completely. And also I find it really helpful because mm. it made me, it'll make me more confident about talking about it about understanding the options I have and uh, I think that's all super helpful but also from what I can understand there's a lot there's a lot of women I know who feel like they really came into this very exciting chapter in their life uh, when they reached sort of I suppose where I am at and for the next decade going forward and I I find that really exciting I feel maybe it's just because where my perspective is at but I feel like we've got so many amazing women that are really lighting the path. Obviously, you're one of them. I just think it's really exciting to have all these conversations because it's all good, isn't it? To have yeah. open chats and it's there's so much solidarity in it and a good sisterhood too. Yeah, and uh, as you said about your 40s, being excited about this period of your life and, and it, I got a sense as well that you're, you just don't fear aging and there's no kind of sense that it's you know there's an end date or there's a time when you feel you won't even be performing. That's for as long as you want to do it. No, I don't feel like I will retire or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I w- I, my dad, when I was young, he would he would always say he was younger than he was. He doesn't do it anymore. But he was always uncomfortable with getting older. And I think it made me feel more determined. I talk about my age quite openly all the time and I, I embrace it. And I don't want to, I don't think you should feel like you have to cling on to the baton of youth, you know, mm. you've got to pass it over. But that doesn't mean you don't get handed an equally brilliant bat on to run with for a bit and then you pass that one on and I, I think that's all good really and you know my my grandma died fairly young I think getting older is a privilege I'm I'm looking forward to all the birthdays yeah it's all good and uh, in terms of Richard and his kind of support as well I think it when you're in a, a relationship that you've you know clearly been together a long time you feel like a team it feels like you know you're a yeah. team and you still I'm saying this surmising, you still fancy each other. <laughs> you still, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do still fancy my husband, um, which is nice. And also, you're right, He, if he wasn't giving me that support, if it wasn't that kind of relationship, if I felt under scrutiny for the new wrinkles and all of that stuff, then that would be a very different story. But I've been lucky enough to, you know, be a part of a relationship where I actually think it is what love is actually really, it was always supposed to be, where it lifts you up. Mm. It's not, it was, you know, my first relationship when I was young taught me a different version of what love was, not as positive. And then, then you look back and you think, I don't think that really was ever love. I think love should always be the lifting you up. 
they should always want the best for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. My my, um, my son had a uh, one of his broken hearts. He's eighteen, and oh. he was in a relationship that he didn't. It didn't seem to be kind of going very well. And I said, you should. I, you know, I was trying not to make a judgment, but I said you should always feel better and more, you know, powerful and uplifted and like you can do more in life because of the person that you're with and with not not worse. It shouldn't make you feel yeah, any worse. True. Yeah. And trying to say that in a way that obviously I wasn't saying, ditch the girlfriend. Um so, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> good. You handled that well. It's well, true as well. I hope so, because you should at that age as well, shouldn't you? And you look back Definitely. and you're right, we've all had those relationships. Well a lot of people have had those relationships. I think you look back in your early relationships when you kind of allow yourself to not feel like the best person and not feel like Definitely. a good version of yourself. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, you are certainly not in that place right now. Um, you're in a great place. I love I love hearing your, about your enthusiasm for your work as well because, you know, we love your work and the touring Thank goes you. on, the kitchen discos are touring, so keep going and enjoying <laughs> and <laughs> take care. How lovely to have Sophie on the show. And I love the fact she's got this newfound confidence in midlife. And with that, new opportunities and adventures are coming her way. A huge thanks to Lucy Cook as well. There is so much more to learn about the wise old Lady Wales and others in her book, Bitch. So please check that out. And my thanks to Spiritland Productions. And finally, huge thanks to you for listening. Please share the podcast with your friends and family so we can welcome more midpointers into the club. I'll be back next Wednesday. I hope you can join me then. Bye.